I'm Dr. Lara Devgan. I'm a plastic surgeon in New York City, the CEO of Scientific Beauty, and of course, a major beauty enthusiast. You are listening to Beauty Bosses, where we chat with fellow industry leaders who are shaping beauty, fashion, wellness, and all things pretty. Hello, everyone. I have an amazing guest on the podcast today, and I'm so excited to be here with Jennifer Zuccarini, the founder of Fleur du Mal, a very chic lingerie and fashion brand. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Oh my God, I'm so happy to have you because I feel like Fleur du Mal is making so many waves right now. I hear it and see it everywhere. Uh, That's good. I like that. (laughs) That's good. We're going to get you some Fleur. I'm excited. Um, Okay, I wanted to start by asking you um, a little bit about how Fleur du Mal is doing right now. Like, Can you tell us a little bit about the reach of the brand and how it's doing and where it's sold and some basic facts. Yeah, absolutely. So I started the brand about seven years ago. Um, Right now we are 75% direct to consumer. So we mostly sell through our website and we have a store in New York. Um, We also do have some wholesale partners like (laughs) Net-A-Porter is one of our biggest partners. Barney's sadly. Oh my God, it's so sad. I don't know what's going to happen next. I can't even. It's heartbreaking um and we work with Saks, forward um a lot of specialty stores but most of our business is really you know it's, it's through our e-commerce which has been exciting because then we can really control the voice and the messaging and the image um, of the brand and i think what's really resonated with people is the way we speak to our customer and who that fleur woman is I love that. Um, you know, I was reading a little bit about your story, and the thing that I was so excited to ask you about was this whole idea, the story I read that you decided when you were in high school that you didn't even necessarily want to be a designer anymore. It was something mm-hmm. that you were toying with, and now here you are. So can you t- take us back to the high school version of you and what you thought you were going to do yeah. with your life? Well, you know, when I was eight, I decided I wanted to be a designer Mm -hmm. and I actually got my mother to get me a sewing machine and sewing lessons and I decided I did not like sewing at that time at eight but um, I did want to be a designer through most of high school and then um, you know in high school I was very much into going out and nightclubs and that whole world that was really like what I I used to work in nightlife so at one point I was thinking, I felt like everyone thought I was going to be a designer. And then it's like, oh, Jennifer's going to be a fashion designer. And at some point you're like, well, maybe I'm not going to be a fashion designer. You know, you kind of rebel against that thing that everybody thinks you're going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I, of course, love fashion. And so then at some point I thought I wanted to become an art dealer because I thought, what do I like doing? I like going to parties. I like travel. I love art. Pretty things. Yeah. <laughs> What's I'm there gonna, not to love? <laughs> I'm going to travel around the world and discover artists and have parties and shows to represent them. So that's kind of, I went down that path for a little while and um, studied art history um, and loved it. I really, really loved that field, but I realized at some point that I'm more of a creator and I love creating things Right, and then you know, so and so you were in Montreal studying fashion. Then you moved to New York and you started at FIT. Yes, I studied fine arts and okay. art history in Montreal, and then I actually did start working in fashion when I was in Montreal because at some point at the end I knew I was going to make that transition, 
and then I moved to New York and I went to FIT, which was, um, and then I just, that was it. That's, I knew I was here to stay. <laughs> and one thing that people may not know is that you, um, this is not your first brand, but um, Kiki de Montparnasse That's right. was your inaugural kind of big deal. Can you tell everyone a little bit about that brand? I think um, a lot of people know about it. Yeah, it was a pretty, definitely in New York and LA, um, you know, so I co-founded Kiki de Montparnasse with two other founders in um, 2006 is when we launched with a beautiful retail experience on Green Street. And, you know, Kiki was everything. It was really the first luxury brand surrounding intimacy. Um, so it was everything from, you know, of course, we had beautiful high-end lingerie. We had sex toys. We had art. We had music, books, jewelry. So it was truly, it was a concept store. And I, the store was so, it was a 3,000-square-foot store on Green Street. And every celebrity came to shop there. And we'd close down the place all the time for people. And I think, you know, when we were first thinking about it, we didn't really know how it was going to be perceived, you know, like, were people going to like this, or are they going to be upset, you know, because, <laughs> you know, we were selling It was a little bit edgy toys. and subversive, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and we would host classes like how to give a spanking and, you know, how to tie somebody up, like crazy, you know, but very elevated, mm-hmm. and it turns out that people love that in New York. Um, we had, you know, kind of a instant, you know, tons of press, and people really got to know the brand quickly so um yeah it was an amazing experience yeah I have a funny kiki story which is that when I got married one of my good friends from college um Jamil Moen if you're listening hi I love Jamil uh, you know him he worked with us yes I know well that's what I was gonna say <laughs> so um, wait oh, of course you know him gosh. um yeah Jamil was one of Jamil. my um really good friends at Yale and I got married um I'm like you know cool obviously but um he took me a little off guard because at my bridal shower he gave me this awesome gift from Kiki that was a whole selection of like lingerie and then plus plus like he included in there like tape and like cups and like 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 a a bunch of stuff that um when I opened in front of my mom and all my (laughs) friends for my bridal shower I was like oh my god but it was awesome um so anyway that's my funny story but that was such a cool brand and so you were there for about four years Mm -hmm. before moving on Yes, and then um, I was approached by Victoria's Secret while I was still at Kiki. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm, I'm an entrepreneur. I've always always just been thinking about starting my own brand. And when Victoria's Secret approached me, at that time I was thinking, I was like, no, that's not for me. I mean, I'm, I like luxury. I, you know, I can't imagine myself being there. But I just, you know, I think it's always important to take the meeting and be open to opportunities. So I had probably 10 meetings with Victoria's Secret and it kind of felt like it was the perfect um, balance to the experience I already had because Kiki was very niche luxury you know it was smaller it was produced in New York to go and see how at that time a six billion dollar company in the biggest lingerie brand in the world operated I realized that would be kind of the perfect experience for me to then take with me after that to start my own brand Okay, so what made you want to leave 
Victoria's Secret, did you start to feel the entrepreneurial bug again? Yes. Yeah. You know, I stayed there. Originally, I thought, I'll do this for two years, Um, you know, and then I'm going to do my own thing. But it was actually very comfortable there. It was, you know, coming from an entrepreneurial experience where everything's on your shoulders, everything, something goes wrong, it's your fault. Like, I felt, you know, you feel the weight of everything. So I loved, I kind of loved the experience of going somewhere where, you know, there was someone to do kind of every part of it and you're more focused on the design Mm -hmm. aspect. And I know just traveling all over the world and learning from cross-functional teams, it was just an interesting, it didn't satisfy me necessarily creatively, but I liked what I learned there from the people I worked with. Um, So yeah, so after a couple of years, and it was hard to leave because you're paid really well and (laughs) it's hard to, the last year I was there, I started thinking about starting my own brand and working on my business plan and really conceptualizing what this was going to be and meeting with people. And once I had a few people that said, you know, I believe in you and I, I would invest if you decide to do this, I decided to make the move. That's so cool. Mm-hmm. Because Fleur du Mal is a little edgy um, yeah. and it has a little bit more heart and personality and inspires maybe a little bit more emotion than some of the major brands. I mean, at least that's my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you describe it when you are thinking about like the essence of the company? Yeah, you know, I really it really comes down to thinking about the woman and who she is and For me, Fleur is this expression of a woman who embraces her femininity and sexuality in a way that she's still powerful in what she's doing, and she's out there accomplishing amazing things, but she's also also a woman and wants to enjoy everything that it means to be a woman. Um, And I really didn't feel like there was a brand, definitely not in lingerie, that spoke to this powerful woman. Um, And so that was kind of my inspiration and that's what we always think about in every everything we do. We're like, is that Fleur? You know, what is she? What music does she listen to? What books does she read? Where does she go out? It's kind of really this full expression of a person. It's like personified in that way. Yeah. I think that I know Fleur is fashion as well as lingerie, but I just wanted to talk about lingerie for a second <laughs> because I think that we are at a very interesting inflection point in the zeitgeist about... Um, lingerie and just intimate wear right now and one thing that I've been noticing is that with brands like Fleur du Mal, Third Love, like little indie brands popping up all over the place that um, negative underwear, you know, brands that are not necessarily related to each other but they're related in the sense that they're not the establishment. Mm -hmm. Um, It almost feels like the big major lingerie companies are losing their steam. Why do you think they're not? Why do you think they don't speak to American women and w- women all over the world? But let's just talk about American women for a second because we're, you know, we're here here in New York City. <laughs> um, uh, why do you think they don't speak to us the same way anymore? I think. Well, I think there's a few things. One, I think Victoria's Secret, for example, they were, you know, they still are, dominate the lingerie market mm-hmm. and really owned more than half of the lingerie market. In the U.S., um, and so that was kind of what people thought of when they're thinking of lingerie. That they sort of defined what sexy was in the U.S. for many years. But I think because 
you know, culture evolved, we've changed, and they kind of, their um, marketing and branding and image kind of stayed stagnant for so many years. And people, even though people were begging them to change their image, they kind of held on to it for so long that I think people felt that, I think now too with e-commerce, the other part of it is that, you know, there's, you don't have to go to your mall, go to a mall to buy lingerie. Everyone can shop online. And so there's so many new brands that have popped up. I think now more than ever, people want to choose brands that really reflect who they are as a person and they want to identify with the brands that they buy from. So, you know, all these brands are really chipping away at, like, for example, Victoria's Secrets business. So Third Love is taking probably that more casual body by Victoria customer that they had that was, Mm -hmm. you know, the more basics. And then we're probably getting that customer that's, you know, graduated from Victoria's Secret, wants something a little bit better and might be leaning more, a little bit more on this sexier. I don't even like to use the word sexy, but like the sexier side of things. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So I think it's, there's choice now before there really wasn't. Yeah. I also think that there is something about how, I don't mean to pick on Victoria's Secret. You can kind of, but you know, they're they're sort of like, they they've become a stand-in for corporate lingerie. Yeah. Um, but I kind of think that the world of corporate lingerie, like with the Victoria's Secret fashion show and the concept of the angels and um, that portrayal of femininity and intimacy, almost feels like the patriarchy telling us how to be beautiful and how to be sexy. Yes. And I think that there's something that is that feels very limiting. And like 2019 is almost the perfect time for the, this awakening of a thousand different indie brands that speak to who you are and not to what everyone says you're supposed to be. Exactly. And I think on some level, I think what people love about Fleur is that you know the voice is authentic. It comes from a woman... I think it resonates with our customer and that's why she feels she's so excited about it. Whereas with Victoria's Secret, at some level it feels more like a man's point of view of what lingerie and that experience should be. Yeah, exactly. it's like are you being always being observed through the male gaze? Yeah. And it can be very annoying, right? Yes. Even if that <laughs> is your sense, even if that's your sense of what beautiful is and it is to many of us, I just think that the the messaging can make people feel more powerful or less powerful. I think about that with my work, like with plastic surgery. Mm-hmm. I think that there's a way to walk into a plastic surgeon's office and have an appointment that makes you feel like, you know, uglier and more belittled than a speck of dirt. Um, or you can walk in and have an experience that makes you feel empowered, like you can be your own kind of beautiful. Yes. And I think it's interesting because we were just talking at our office about plastic surgery on the weekend. We had to do some work on the weekend. Um, And we were saying, I was talking to someone in LA about how at some point everyone starts to look the same, especially in LA sometimes, because there's a very specific thing that people are going for. And it's such an interesting conversation, I'm sure, to have Mm -hmm. as a plastic surgeon to help people embrace, you know, even some people... I don't want to name names, but there's some people that are so super famous that have had a lot of plastic surgery <laughs> that at some point they're like, they don't have that essence of that individuality anymore. It's all become this, everyone has the same nose, the same lips. It's, 
Yeah. And is there is there a universe in which we can allow people to feel like the best version of themselves but still maintain some of the essential characteristics of facial identity? And, you know, I think we've always inherited this very dichotomous idea that either you're a woman of substance or you're a superficial plastic surgery junkie and you're, like, yes. totally morphing your face and body. But is there not a way to be body positive and still want to change one little thing and you know is there not a way to be a lingerie company and sell um you know intimacy and you know sell sex for better or for worse but make it empowering and make it interesting and make it you know individual yeah and i think that there is there is gray area i think totally and i think for us you know the diversity and inclusivity conversation is so important and we just launched our um, extended size collection a couple of months ago with Precious Lee which is amazing um, something we had wanted to do for years um, but I think coming back to that Victoria's Secret thing like there wasn't enough diversity in who Victoria's Secret was deeming to be this is the model of what beautiful and sexy is um, and I think the more that you can show that then people are like okay I can be any size I want to be and you can still you can be a different size and still be completely sexy and amazing you know I think that's what's important Mm -hmm. what role do you think confidence plays in fashion and lingerie and intimacy I mean I think it's everything but I think you can fake it (laughs) (laughs) that's true (laughs) that's true I mean I think sometimes I think that the things that you choose, your clothing and how you present yourself can give you confidence as well. It can help you. Like it I think totally confidence comes from within, number one, for sure. But sometimes, you know, don't you feel more confident if you're wearing the suit that makes you look amazing or these shoes? Like you it's sort oh, of like absolutely. it's the prep. It's the preparation of who you're becoming who you are in the world. I think that really helps amplify that. Yeah, I totally appreciate that, and I think that um, I love that you guys are kind of creating this way that you can be feminine and powerful at the same time. Mm-hmm. It's fun, and it's also meant to be fun. Like I, I feel like sometimes things now feel so serious, and what's wrong with embracing you know that spirit of playfulness and but still being chic and all those other great things. Were there ever moments when you felt like this brand wasn't going to make it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Many. Um, no, yeah, definitely a few, a few years ago, and it was funny, I was just sh- sharing this story on a panel I did. Um, you know, f- early days of Fleur, when we were a very, very small team, you know, I had, we had, you know, it's, fashion is so cash cash flow intensive and um things were really really tight and I I didn't know if we were going to make it and I had a very small team and a lot of people on my team decided to resign at the same time just before the holidays oh my god and I (laughs) couldn't believe it and I just and I think because they were scared that we weren't and at that time I I was very open about everything which I learned now to like not share certain things with your team because it scares them. Like, I'd be like, guys, I don't know what's going to happen. You know, like, like, I was very just straightforward about everything that was mm-hmm. happening. And I think people got scared. And then I literally had almost my whole team resign. And at that point, I thought, I don't, 
I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if maybe this is a sign that it's not meant to be. Um, and then I called a really good friend of mine, Maria, who has a business, and she said, Jen, I've been there. I've had the same thing happen with my team. You're going to get through it. You're just going to get through it. You're going to buckle down, and you're going to make it happen. And I did, and it was a really difficult couple of months. Um, and I was it was agony. Like, I look back on it as the worst time <laughs> in my in the life of Fleur. But it made me stronger, and honestly, I think it's all about perseverance and grit and being able to put in the time and the hours when other people might give up that allowed me to continue. Yeah, and it's never really, it's never easy. I mean, fashion is never, it's just not an easy, anyway, not not what we're doing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that, it, I think that all those challenges are so, you know, they can really hit you, but then they make you grow. Yeah. Um, what are your goals for the, you know, coming years for the brand? Um, you know, we're expanding retail a little bit. So we are opening a store in LA. We have our store in New York. We're potentially opening a second store in New York, up in your neighborhood, up here. Oh, nice. Um, you know, I think I really, I really want to continue talking about the message behind Fleur and really get into, um, you know, talking about, I love the idea of talking about desire and we do a lot of talks and different events where we bring, you know, sex experts and therapists and, um, you know, we did a talk even in LA with, um, some great sex experts and talked about how that and cannabis and how those two worlds collide. Um, I, I really like the community and educational side of Fleur in a way, in a weird way, it sounds kind of but I like building these events and experiences around the brand um, and how that how that touches our community. I get the most excited about things like that. So aside from, of course, developing amazing product and opening stores and our e-commerce just blowing up, um, I think it's the, I think right now what's really important with brands is how they, how they bring their community together. Yeah. Yeah, it's not just the Instagram page, it's also the what happens in real life and yeah. and, and who you are. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's really cool. Are you still really involved in the actual design process? I am, yes. I'm very involved. I would love to be, I think my one goal that I always talk about every year is being devoting more time to that. And I think as an entrepreneur, um, I'm very involved in so many aspects of the business that sometimes that's what comes last a little bit because I feel like, oh, I have to do X, Y, Z first and then I'll focus on design. Um, So I really want to make that more of a priority. I mean, I have a great team. I'm involved in every style, but I definitely have an amazing team to help bring it all together. And are you still involved in the social? Because you guys have an awesome... I know, because I was reading that you um, that's something that you hold close to your heart. Because it is the first consumer touch point to the brand. I do too. And like I actually run my own Instagram. There are many people who help me in, you know, capturing the images, putting them together. I have so much help, so I don't mean to say that I do it all myself. But I think that who can speak in a brand's voice better than... The person who's like really thinking about the brand yes there's not one post that I don't approve or like 
work on with my team. It's very, yeah, exactly. That's your audience. I mean, that's how people discover the brand. That's how we engage. So it's um, something we take pretty seriously. (laughs) I was reading about this whole incident where, you know, I know that intellectual property in fashion is really tricky because you know, people aren't really protected in the way that maybe they should be. Right. Um, that there's no such thing as copywriting a, a shirt, no. much less a bra or whatever. Exactly. Um, but I do think it is a little bit of an interesting ethical topic. And I was reading some stuff about um, other companies basically knocking off some designs that you're pretty famous for. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to just ask you about that. Yes. Well, Victoria's Secret knocked off one of our collections called the Lily Collection that a lot of people really know us for. Um, they actually purchased that, all of that, like a large quantity of that collection from us um, and then ended up knocking it off about five months later. And I think what was upsetting about it was, well, you can see it from the Diet Prada post. Um, yeah, and actually, I read I read this Diet Prada post, and um, and um, you guys should check it out. It's the Diet Prada post from July twelfth. Um, if you want to know what we're talking about, but go ahead. Yeah, we can see it's a pretty blatant knockoff. I mean, it's one thing to be inspired, and you know we've been knocked off many times before, and most of the time we don't really pay that much attention to it, but. I think this felt so deliberate in the sense that Victoria's Secret, it was a big part of their campaign. It was in all of their windows. It was in the front of all their stores. It was in commercials. It was in print campaigns. Um, so it was, you know, it, it's it's tough because you feel like, what are you supposed to do when this happens? It's very difficult, as you mentioned, to copyright or trademark apparel designs. Um, but I do feel like something like this, but the, I think what's interesting about this now is before, you know, you might not have realized that this even happened if you weren't going into Victoria's Secret stores and looking for it. But with social media, it was really our customer that pointed that pointed it out to us. Everyone was DMing us and live chatting us and it was unbelievable. People were like, did you see this? Victoria's Secret knocked you up, oh my God, and sending us photos and from the windows, it was just like, it was, people were so angry. Like our customer was so angry and our followers. Um, and they were like, we hope you're gonna sue them and you need to take it to Diet Prada. It was just very interesting. And, and then what did social it, media police what did it do for you when Diet Prada picked up the story? I mean, it just brought, I think, more awareness to it. And I think, I think it's, there's not a lot you can do when this happens. So somehow now Diet Prada has become the voice social of that. justice yeah, for social fashion. justice exactly and even speaking to the CFDA about it they were like die Prada I mean <laughs> they don't really and did you submit it and then they posted it or your no, well, your fan people, base submitted it and... I think a few people submitted it yeah my whole team really wanted to submit it so people yeah. started sending it in but they asked they did ask us to verify some things and we did yeah I think that um, it's it's kind of, it's kind of shocking, and I think it's also, um, 
a testament to the power of the internet. I know people are always talking about all the negative things that social media does for us, but it does allow you to establish a community with a worldwide reach and just kind of in a way that that would have never happened 10 or 15 years ago. You would have just been um, totally rolled over and basically steamrolled by a $6 billion company mm-hmm. and it would have mass produced it and it would have been like your voice in an echo chamber and nobody would have heard it. Exactly. Um, so I think that's really cool. But I also think social media is really interesting for um, allowing a brand like yours to grow very quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, most most people discover our brand on Instagram. Yeah. Definitely. What do you think is the future of kind of like the ethics of the ethics of uh, um protecting intellectual property in fashion. Do you think that we're going to have a change where um, uh, where things are going to protect the artists a mm-hmm. little bit more? Well, I think I've learned a lot about it going through this process, and I actually participated in a panel that the um, Fashion Law Institute, which is part of Fordham University, hosted. Um, you know, I think it's, it's tricky because the practical part of it as a, as a designer who's doing multiple seasons, you're not going to, or it's going to be very challenging for you to say, well, let me try to copyright or trademark these 100 styles I'm doing every season or find some element about it that I can protect. Um, I think there's, there's definitely things you can do if you have a print or if you have a, a certain hardware detail, but overall it's, I think, I think at the end of the day, it's about who you are as a brand. And even if someone else knocks you off, your customer, my customer, I'm hoping, is not buying that Victoria's Secret knockoff because what they want is something, is an experience and something they're getting from Fleur that if they wouldn't feel good about buying that yeah. knockoff. Yeah, I'm totally with you. Yeah. Well, I can't wait to hear about all the exciting things you do next. And I'm so Thank happy you. to have had you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. That was this great. Was so I really fun. appreciate it.